Good evening. Uh, thank you for your practice uh, today. And thank you for being here and for your um, uh, wonderful motivations expressed uh, last night and, and uh, today. I'll invite us as we uh, as we sit and listen as, and as I speak to keep with that sense of both um, some inner attention and some outer attention at the same time. To have some way of, as it were, staying home and possibly tracking uh, your thoughts or reactions at the same time that you're also listening. That combination of inner and outer attention. And my intention is to do the same. To track whatever comments I make about the talk as they're occurring. One of my uh, very uh, beloved mentors uh, a number of years ago, John Travis, uh, he gave me some guidance on giving uh, talks. I think there was particularly uh, given to me, he said, when you talk, you know, do whatever preparation you're going to do and so forth. And then uh, when you're ready to talk, Ground in your body, be in your heart, be in your belly, and let your thoughts self-organize. And it actually points to something which I think will come out in this week, which is that this connecting of, uh, as it were, the the, uh, paths of inner and outer transformation is also uh, related in many ways to our connection of mind and body and heart. That, that this is uh, part of the, uh, I think, the healing of our times to connect those uh, in many ways, both, again, both in terms of our individual experience and in terms of the, the earth, thinking of the earth as the uh, body that we've been uh, cut off from. So uh, this evening, I want to give some further framing, some further ways of framing uh, what exactly uh, socially engaged Buddhism is and what the path of practice is that we can speak about in terms of socially engaged Buddhism. And so uh, I'll continue, really, some of the themes that David brought up and this is really giving the, some of the foundations, really, for our week. And uh, starting tomorrow, the rhythm of our days will be a little bit different, that we'll start in the morning with focus more on some of the larger collective dimensions of uh, our lives and of uh, the main institutions. In the afternoon, we'll be doing more experiential work Uh, often of a more relational nature. So we can think of the collective, our practice in the collective dimension, our practice in a more relational dimension with others, interaction, people, groups, organizations, and so forth. And then in the evening, it'll be a little more similar to a traditional Dharma talk in terms of focusing on individual practice. So I'll come back to that theme tonight of, of seeing these uh, three really realms or domains of practice, 
And it's, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's a good starting point, that we, that we have the collective part of our lives, the relational part of our lives, and the, uh, the more the inner part, the more individual dimension of our, of our lives. So first, some, um, we're going to give some examples of socially engaged Buddhism, and in a sense, some vignettes to help it come alive. And I'll, I also brought in some uh, quotations and the first is from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the, uh, really the uh, framing of socially engaged Buddhism owes so much to the experience in Vietnam in the, uh, really from the 1930s, uh, especially up through the 1960s. And the figure of Thich Nhat Hanh especially, many of you know, his work. So this is what he said. This is, I believe, uh, ref- this is reflecting back on the time of the war in Vietnam. He said, when I was in Vietnam, so many of our villages were being bombed. Along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help the people who were suffering under the bombs? After careful reflection, we decided to do both. (laughs) To go out and help people, but to do so in mindfulness. We called it engaged Buddhism. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. We must be aware of the real problems of the world. Then with mindfulness, we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. So this very... uh, powerful set of experiences from Vietnam. You know, there are different, very powerful images. You know, one of, the, one of the ones that has stayed most with me is the image of a time when there was uh, actual fighting in a particular uh, locale, I think in central Vietnam. And at one point, a group of monks and nuns walked right in the middle of the battlefield. Between the opposing forces... And the, fight, the fighting stopped. Fighting stopped for some time. They were really... Um, um, the power of that spiritual presence was able to stop the wars. You know, it's, um, it reminds me of this very beautiful poem, actually in the Western tradition, from St. John of the Cross, who says, if we really love, if our love is strong enough, then the guns will wilt. From the 16th century, from Western Catholic tradition. You know? So there's something about that. And in fact, um, Thich Nhat Hanh liked to speak of nonviolence more positively. He talked about it as love in action, which is... Uh, beautiful way to speak about it. It's also very much the kind of language that we find from Dr. Martin Luther King and that, that tradition of nonviolence. Uh, uh, Cornell West, some of you know, uh, he speaks of um, he speaks of justice as the public face of love. So there is that sense that there's the um, 
not just the, as it were, the stopping of what's bad, but the, the generating of love as an energy in the world. And you can think of Gandhi also. Gandhi said the energy of his movement was soul force. Remember that term? Uh, the soul force is really the energy that drives that. So that's really the direction that this is going. It's towards how does, how can there be a different energy for social change that comes from our depths? You know? And so that's one way of understanding what we're doing. And we find that uh, Buddhist practice is particularly powerful for taking us to our depths and seeing what stands in the way. Right? That's what practice is. That's what our practice is. You know, that's what the awakening process is. It's coming to our depths by way of seeing what stands in the way. And the process of studying what stands in the way can take a while. As in a New Yorker cartoon where they show two monks sitting next to each other, one of them says, I hear this takes a while. I brought a pack. I brought a sack lunch. So there's that, that sense of, uh, you know, and that, that can give really uh, another way of seeing that combination of responding to the needs of the world, but coming from one's depths. That's another way to talk about all this. You know, and I think we know that if we don't come from our depths, uh, there are various kinds of problems. It's another very direct way to say it, you know, that if we don't come from our depths, we don't have spiritual resources. On the one hand, we, uh, if we are more active, on the one hand, we have limited vi- uh, vision, limited wisdom. We don't see, as David was suggesting, how we may be replicating the same old problems in our unconsciousness. Familiar pattern from social movements, unfortunately. You know? And also, the spiritual resources make it possible for us to be there for the long haul. It's really what your question was about earlier, you know, about, about burnout. And we need uh, quite powerful resources to help us deal with what's in front of us and be there for the long haul. So beautiful uh, resources from, from, from Vietnam. So another, um, another image... This is, uh, this is from my own experience. This is working with uh, Joanna Macy, wonderful teacher. Many of you probably know her work, uh, who uh, teaches at Spirit Rock about once a year. And um, this was a while ago, but about 20 years ago, I was working a lot with Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and I was quite active in trying to uh, help respond to the crisis of what we now call the first Gulf War and uh, was helping to hold uh, town meetings and gather people. And I, with some others, we we published like a a brochure packet which assembled resources, which was sent all over the world, you know, to to different people, uh, giving uh, both historical material and also... uh, ways of responding based in practice, we might say. You know, a, lot of, a lot of good materials. It's really a study guide, uh, practice guide. 
And, and yet, uh, and I remember we were holding, one of the meetings we held was held, I remember it was uh, January 16th, 1991. It was the day that the bombing started. And we happened to hold a meeting in Berkeley, California for people who were wanting to respond to the crisis, which at that point was a crisis. And we, little did we know that the bombing would start that evening. And we had about 300 people meeting there. You know, and eventually we learned it was happening uh, bombing was starting, and, and we, we actually had a um, really just an open forum where people spoke what was on their minds and you know, different emotions and so forth. And um, the week later, uh, many of us were doing a training with Joanna Macy in her work, which now is called The Work That Reconnects, and many of you, I'm sure, know her, her work, which really is about going into the depths of one's emotions and one's body to see, the, see what we hold in terms of the pain that we hold for the world, which kind of merges with our own individual pain, our own woundedness, you know, our own numbness. And I often think in terms of these times that helping to have people access and work through their numbness and the wounds around how we feel about the world may be one of the most important contributions because that's very so prevalent. There's a numbness. There's a, a deadness. People, I mean, in us too, you know, but I mean, it's different levels, but there's a way that um, we, in a sense, know some of the problems and we um, haven't processed the pain. You know? And so it numbs us and it really... Uh, makes it hard for us to act, you know, and the work of Joanna Macy was really designed to work through that. And I experienced in that time when the bombing started, it was like my, I had been quite active for quite a few months on this issue. And I was, uh, I think I went into shock in some way, you know, went into a kind of numbness. And luckily, we were doing these workshops, I think, on, on uh, two successive weekends. One was for actually doing the work for several days in a row, and the, the following weekend was training us to be facilitators of that work. You know, so we, we did that work, and I experienced doing that work, um, which, which many of you know has these very creative formats uh, in a group context, one of the formats invites people to gather in a circle and people, when they're ready, they go into the inner, inner part of the circle and one, one practice, one ritual has four cushions, one of them for um, anger, one of them for fear, one of them for sadness, one of them for confusion, and then a, a kind of four quadrants. In the middle, there's a cushion for none of the above, <laughs> you know, and... Uh, and people go into that when they're ready and express their emotions. So people would express anger and fear and confusion and despair and so forth. And people went in there and it was uh, you know, an amazing process because it, it accessed that which was very hard to access in ordinary experience, ordinary consciousness. You know, we needed, we needed uh, tools and support. And, uh, you know, and it was amazing what one found also, you know, that the that people's individual pain merged with the social pain. I, I believe that's true in terms of the 
you know, what's there in our being, in our psyche, you know, and we were able to touch that and to work through it. I was amazed to touch, you know, and there was, there was, there was, you know, in with the pain about this event was the pain about racism or the pain about, um, you know, whatever, my own issues or whatever was right, right all in there. And the format gave a way of touching it, being with it with mindfulness and support and care. And there was a way that just as we do in the meditation or one might do in psychological work, when one willing, one's willing to open to what's there, there's a tendency for it to be able to move. Without that, it gets stuck. You know? So that's another way of talking about what we somehow want to do. So beautiful, creative ways to do this in our society. And I found that touching some of that um, painful territory, which was not particularly fun. Um, you know, and it was, but it was, it was, it was very freeing, you know, and, and I found my, my energy completely shifted, you know, after that. So it's just a, another vignette and maybe one last vignette. Um, this is from uh, Sri Lanka. Some of you know the work of Dr. Arya Ratni from Sri Lanka, who's probably developed the most, uh, Um, what, how should I say, the most uh, developed form of engaged Buddhism that's existed. With, uh, in Sri Lanka, there are, uh, he started about 1958 with an organization called Sarvodaya. It's basically community organizing, a la Barack Obama. (laughs) You know, it's community organizing. They have 15,000 uh, villages organized to connect inner work with serving people. 15,000. They had a more thorough response to the tsunami than the government did. You know. And I, I think we're nominated for the one, one of the alternative Nobel Peace Prizes, I believe. And so, as, as many of you know, they also had a civil war in Sri Lanka between the, um, some of the Tamils, uh, Hindu-based, and, and the majority uh, Sinhalese. And quite brutal, quite a number of uh, people killed uh, since the early uh, 80s. And um, the organization Sarvodaya has played a very large role in the peace process, which is still incomplete, but it's, it's happening. And I just wanted to let you know of one form that they experimented with, which was large groups of people meditating. Very large groups of people meditating. One time they asked people to come together to meditate to support the peace process in 2002. And um, this one particular time... um, 650,000 people came. (laughs) And they were meditating together. And I think I'll I'll read you a passage from uh, Joanna Macy. She was there. She gets around. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, this is what she said. Um, It was in a uh, holy site called uh, Anura Dapura. I arrived at Anura Dapura on the day of the meditation the sacred site, probably half a mile in diameter, contains several great stupas and the world's most ancient Bodhi tree grown from a cutting taken from the tree that sheltered the Buddha. 
during his enlightenment brought to Sri Lanka by King, Ashok, King, Ashokya, King Ashoka's daughter, Sakyadita. Some of you know there's an organization called Sakyadita, which is an organization of Buddhist women, very much one of, one of the uh, international group, um, one of the socially engaged uh, organizations. When I got there, people were streaming in from all directions in the tradition of these events. Everyone was dressed in white and moving in silence. 650,000 people moving in silence. Can you imagine that? They had arrived from all over the country on foot and on trains, bicycles, and according to one person's count, 4,000 buses. The meditation ceremony took place at 3 p.m. Members of the clergy of all the religions of Sri Lanka were gathered on a platform and each said a few words in front of them on a slightly lower stage, surrounded by flowers. Uh, On the slightly lower stage in front of them was Dr. Ariaratni. After the spoken prayers, he began to lead us in mindfulness of breathing. (laughs) Breathing in, breathing out, Uh, Joanna writes, uh, the silence was the most exquisite sound I've ever heard. It was the sound of 650,000 people being quiet together in the biggest meditation um, ever heard on planet Earth. I said to myself, this is the sound of bombs not exploding, of landmines not going off, of machine guns not firing. This is possible. So... I think that points to really the, um, the creativity. I think that David was really suggesting. There's, there are these tremendous uh, traditions, really, that are coming together. It's the tradition of the, these, the deep uh, transformation, coming to, know, coming to know our nature, really, coming to know our deep nature, cultivating the qualities of love and kindness and compassion and insight and really seeing our original brilliance that is there. You know, the original brilliance of our, uh, of our mind without fetters. You know, our mind and heart and body without fetters. And again, uh, by going by way of seeing what stands in the way. It's our practice, really. You know, it's kind of analogous to in a way, what we might do on, on a more of a social or collective level, where I think uh, so many activists tend to focus on the negative, but it's actually very important to also focus on the good society or the dharmic society or what we want. Sometimes a, um, a blind spot for activists. You know, we get so preoccupied with what's unjust or wrong that we don't focus on the positive. You know, some of, again, many of you know that Gandhi really was actually more interested in what he called the constructive program, which was the positive program for a healthy India. You know, he also, tremendous energy to, um, in a friendly way, ask the British to leave and <laughs> make that possible, <laughs> you know. Um, but that, that constructive aspect, where we think of Dr. King with the emphasis on the beloved community, you know, the, that... And I think it's a very helpful way to look at our practice that we are both uh, opening up to the beautiful qualities and so much, and our practice has to have that where we won't last. We have to touch the beauty, the power, 
the compassion, the quiet mind. That's why retreats are so important, because we know that's possible, and why daily sitting is so important. So we have to know that on a daily basis, that the, the quiet mind, the mind of the compassion, the good heart is there. You know, you know I, was, I was thinking of, of um, you know, Dr. King and the place in the civil rights movement of music and of prayer and thinking of times when he said, well, I was really basically in a really bad place. And then I went and we sung and we prayed and things shifted, you know. And there, we have to have resources like that that can help us actually access um, uh, our, our, our beautiful places. You know, and then there's the other side is we go through the hard stuff. We go through our suffering, our patterns, our habitual patterns, and so forth. So, so I, think that, I think a lot of what we'll be saying, and this is what I have found, is that the, the vision of uh, our own individual spiritual practice really parallels, in many ways, a spiritually grounded way to approach community or social issues. You know, here, just suggesting that dual focus on the vision as well as the problems. Really, really, really important. It's important for our individual practice. It's important for community life, and it's not easy. Right? You can get really preoccupied by the issues or the problems. So there's this vision, then, of connecting the... You know the inner and the outer, connecting the connecting Buddhist practice with an emphasis on justice. And you know, uh, there was some emphasis on uh, really responding socially in Buddhist tradition. You know, it's it's uh, we've exaggerated maybe a little bit the the dichotomy. You know, one does find uh, one does find uh, in uh, the texts of the Buddha a lot of interest in what social conditions lead to a harmonious society. Many times the Buddha tried to stop wars. He intervened, tried to intervene to stop wars. Um, the, a lot of the ways that the ethical precepts get expressed is not just in an individual way, but also sometimes in a social way. You know, some of you may know it's in the packet. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, when he comes to express the ethical precepts, he expresses the first precept about not harming as do not kill do not let others kill. That second sentence is quite significant. Right? But you can find passages that are analogous in the ancient text. The Buddha says at one point, do not kill, do not approve of others killing. You know, so there's a, social, there's a social dimension there. We have the, the sense of the bodhisattva, the one who is dedicated to uh, help others you know, and to stay connected to the project of awakening. We have uh, King Ashoka, who took a lot of the ethical precepts and formed one of the most enlightened societies that has ever existed. Abolished capital punishment in India uh, about uh, 2,400 years ago. Had special ways to protect animals, you know, Inspired by the by the ethical precepts of Buddhism, so we have those we have those examples, but here we are in the um, contemporary world, and we want to bring inner and outer together, and I just want to uh, talk a little bit about how that is not easy. 
okay, uh, for a lot of reasons. So let me see for my, I should have numbered, I didn't number my pages in my notes either. <laughs> I think I should remember to number pages in the future. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, it's on. I'm good on microphones. I'm not always good on numbers. (laughs) Okay. Um, So I mentioned yesterday, and I think I think this actually important issue is is that um, it's you know we can have this inspiring vision of connecting our inner practice with being out there in the world and helping others, but it's not easy for all sorts of reasons. You know, Um, one of them one of them is is that. there are strong tendencies, I think, in our culture to dichotomize the two. You know, it's not just that they're different traditions, but I think in the West, for quite a number of centuries, those who are interested in social justice basically have had a critique of religion, you know, from the Enlightenment period, from the 18th century, 19th century. Think of Marx, religion is the opium of the people by which he didn't mean that religion was totally bad, actually. He thought opium was better than suffering. But he did think that it was, he meant by that that it was a kind of escape. It wasn't a real way to deal with problems. And so we have this heritage that's been many, many centuries in which um, the, those who talk about social change, social justice have commonly had a completely, not, not always, of course, but very often had a secular vocabulary and been <coughs> anti-religious, anti-spiritual, and thought that religion or spirituality is a problem. And you can find that quite pervasive now you know, uh, in probably many of the social change organizations you've been part of. I think that's changing quite quickly now. But you know, I was thinking of visiting um, Occupy Oakland and always was a big group of meditators. Some of you probably went there. You know, a lot of meditators there. Um, but, but still, there's been that split for a long time uh, in which um, religion or spirituality was seen as escapist and problematic and, and so forth. And there are, a lot of, there are a lot of deep roots to that. And then on the other hand, there's a way in which um, Buddhism has been primarily interpreted in the West through meditation. And of course, meditation is wonderful. I you know, spent a lot of time doing that. But it's an incomplete understanding of the path of awakening. Meditation is generally taken to be one of three forms of training, along with ethical training and training in wisdom. And I think in the West, we've so much focused on meditation that we don't give so much attention to how we live and how we bring the, the meditation out into the world. And again, there are quite a number of exceptions to that, but it's a very common pattern. And so meditation tends to be very often seen by people as a way to um, deal with stress in a stressful society, to come to some personal peace. You know? And it's often used that way. You know? And so there are not so many people who are actively practicing uh, in an engaged way. 
in a socially engaged way. Many of them would want to, but they don't always know what to do. You know, I think it's... But there's also, uh, you know, when people are busy and stressed, and again, this may be some of us at certain times, right? This may, this may apply to us. And so there tends to be, I, I can feel it sometimes when I bring up the social dimension in meditative context, I can feel people tensing some. Hey, we came here to cool out. <laughs> you know, uh, we don't want to deal with those issues. And again, I, I want to bow to there's a certain real importance for people to have cycles in which they don't deal with the world's issues. You know, I've done that myself. And I think it's really, really important to have cycles of being more inner and cycles of being more outer. That's partly what we're talking about in terms of burnout. You know, really, really very much. I honor that. I've had cycles in which I've been more inner and my activist friend said, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? But there, so I think there are those cycles, but it's real. But there are these ways in which the inner and the outer can easily be separated, and in which the attention to the issues of the world are not always so welcome in meditation centers. And then uh, the uh, bringing of spiritual practice is not so always so welcome among people interested in social justice or service or community. Maybe more for those doing service. You know, doing practice, you know, uh, you know, I was thinking of our path of engagement program that I was part of, that um, we really had a broad range of people. We had about 50 people in the program, and there were a number of people who were in the medical field, nurses and doctors, whose form of engaged practice was really learning better, maybe to be present, to watch their, you know, to deal with burnout, to have resources, to be present with people who were suffering and so forth. There were people working in prisons. There were people who were um, maybe educators. There were uh, people in various, uh, various uh, service areas. And there also were activists. There were people who were uh, trying to change larger policies. There were people who were, quite a number of people were in uh, local government. You know, it was quite interesting. We had, and, you know, and then... Um, you know, all, sort, all sorts of people uh, were, were there. And so that service work, sometimes we can make those connections a little more easily. You know, we, that if one's working in a hospital, to be mindful, to be able to listen to the patients is a direct application of the practice. And it clearly is beneficial, right? And even to bring meditation into the medical field, it's one of the places where there have been tremendous results, you know, to bring, to bring um, uh, mindfulness, loving kindness, um, you know, you mentioned John Kabat-Zinn. His application, one of the first applications, was bringing meditation to people with chronic pain. Because part of what we learn in meditation is that we can actually just be sometimes with something that's unpleasant without reacting. You know, do you know that very fundamental teaching that we can be with unpleasant sensations, unpleasant emotions. And what we learn is to be with those without necessarily reacting. Doctors say that 80% of what people experience as physical pain is the reaction. So if you can teach people to just be with the pain, which is not easy, you know, and not, you know, sometimes one has to use medication as well, you can actually potentially eliminate 80% of the pain. Pretty revolutionary. And the same thing can very much be true emotionally. You know, we can really see that. 
So, uh, so there, there are these challenges, you know, and I, I know for myself, uh, I felt uh, at times quite a lot of loneliness in, in not being able to really have all of myself show up. I mentioned that some last night. In among friends who were more active or interested in social justice or in the meditative context. And, you know, personally, uh, I resolved that issue by moving to California. So, Luke, I don't know. If <laughs> uh, I'm joking a little bit, but there's, 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 um, there's really value in having a critical mass of like-minded people. Really, really important. So I um, just want to bring up one further point, which is, because um, really, I'm really pointing, I think, to the way that bringing together inner and outer is challenging, but it's incredibly creative. It's really doing something that hasn't been done that much. And one of the ways that I've come in my own teaching to think about uh, engaged practice is it really came from the work that I did with uh, uh, my, my close friend Diana Winston. We, uh, she was the person who founded the base program for Buddhist Peace Fellowship, that program of small groups, uh, people gathering for six months. We've had about 30 of those programs. And she's now Director of Mindfulness Education at the UCLA Mindful, Mindful Awareness Research Center in LA. So, uh, but, but we worked together for quite a number of years, about, about 10 years together, and we eventually developed a framework, uh, a curriculum for engaged Buddhism, and we, and we developed uh, principles. And actually, you don't have to look at it now, but in the packet, I think on page three. <laughs> Any, any, any of you on Dharma Seed, that was an inside joke. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. Um, um, we, we started developing a framework, and the, the framework we, we found that we wanted, we had a really, uh, there's so much creativity called for by people basically who want to bring practice into all the parts of our lives. And we found that we needed to make a distinction between. Uh, these three areas that I mentioned earlier. Individual practices in which we work with our own selves, as in uh, mindfulness meditation. Relational practices where we may work with others. We may work uh, in a group or work with a, in a dyad where we do certain relational practices. And we'll start exploring those tomorrow. I like to interpret uh, all of speech practice as a kind of relational practice where we could imagine how do we function as an organization as a group? How do we bring our spiritual practice to, a, to form a healthy organization? That's a kind of relational practice. And then we have the collective practice of participating in the larger systems. And we basically came to see that Buddhism has a great number of well-worked-out individual practices. And guess what? The other areas are not either uh, not developed at all or are very underdeveloped. And so we started trying to expand the model of Buddhist practice, which is, I think, really what engaged practice is about. It's an expanded model of Buddhist practice, it's an expanded model of spiritual practice, in which increasingly all the parts of our lives become practice. You know, so we don't have, okay, here I'm a meditator on the cushion. Okay, I'm at work. I don't know. The <laughs> You know, my friend, my co-workers, they're not doing it, so I'm, you know, I guess I better go back and do another retreat. 
you know. Uh, but how do we structure our work, you know, either with others or by ourselves, so that it can be practiced, you know? And so there are a lot of different tools, some of which we'll explore on, on the retreat, that help us to do that. Um, and so we we found that we needed to be very creative. What does uh, you know? What does a well-developed speech practice look like? How do we work with conflict? How do we interpret the ethical precepts so that they apply not just to face-to-face behavior, but to the whole social dimension? You know? And so in so many of these areas, we found that we could really start to be thinking and, and doing research from other traditions. We could really have an understanding of these three realms of practice and that we need great creativity to know how to make the, you know, how, what these look like in terms of uh, connecting with the relational or the collective dom- domain. And it's not just being in groups or organizations or dealing with the issues of society. It's also one aspect would be how do we deal with the way we've internalized the society. And I think that was, that was mentioned earlier, you know, with the, the way we internalize uh, racism or sexism or consumerism or a certain view of the natural world. That's all in us, right? And how do, we, how do we work with that? That suggests whole forms of spiritual practice, right? That we can, some of which we can even do on the cushion. Right? We can do that. And how do we, you know, and Joanna Macy's another person who's been very innovative in developing these relational practices where one works in a group to deal with um, working through the inner wounds, the inner pain, the confusion, the numbness. And so that's really, I think, in part what... Um, I want to suggest that there's um, this path of connecting inner and outer, I think is deeply needed by our, our world. You know, because so many of the issues we have to deal with are collective and they're large. And we have to do them together and we have to have the resources that let us be there for the long haul, that let us be there with difficulties, that let us be savvy about how to work with conflicts with others, that let us have a tremendous equanimity. We need those kind of resources, and we can develop those through these practices. We can do that. You know, it's, really, um, it's really possible. So the, the world really um, is really calling... I think, I think uh, human evolution is calling forth this possibility and this creativity you know, at this time, because we need those spiritual resources and probably resources from every spiritual tradition to really um, have enough uh, power to deal with the scope of the issues and be able to be sustainable in ourselves. And then the other side of that is that uh, I know, you know, even the people I was talking about who may be, um, and again, this may include us at times, um, who maybe are using meditation more in a, just for the purposes of personal peace or a little more relaxation or peace. Again, I think it's legitimate, of course, but it's, it, it can be limited. You know, I mean, I, I think that there's a deep call in them to expand their practice. I know people, I know those people, they want to do, you know, again, they're no different than us. We have all those pieces, you know, in, it, in ourselves. Um, and so I think that there's also this call for those interested in spirituality and peace to 
especially once there's some degree of stability and some degree of resource to bring it out to help others and to help our world, you know. Maybe I'll finish with, uh, I think I have two quotations. Here's some of my favorite, favorite ones, short. Okay, uh, the first is from Zen. This is from uh, uh, the poet Gary Snyder's Zen teacher, Odo Sasha Roshi. He said, in Zen, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. Okay. I don't need to explain that, right? Okay, it's a Zen statement, so it's not, you know, it's not all ladled out in the bowl. <laughs> so I'll read it again. But I, I like it very much because it's kind of understated but profound in my view. Okay. In Zen, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. And then last is a beautiful short poem by Dina Metzger called Song. There are those who want to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. There are those who want to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. Let's sit for um, just a moment or two. Let this settle some, and then we can talk together a little bit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.